Welcome to episode 26 of The History Files. We're recording this during the week of August 9th, 2015. I'm Gordon Fry. And I'm Nancy Fry. In today's episode, we're going to continue with our treatment of the conquest of the West, today focusing on the main theaters of the Mexican-American War, its origins, and then some interesting tidbits of history. But first, let's go to history headlines. August 13, 1521. After a three-month siege, the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan fell to the Spanish conquistadors, marking the end of one empire and the rise of another. This is an amazing chapter in history and definitely something that I want to explore in greater depth in the near future. The bravery of the Aztecs, the amazing fortitude of the Spaniards in the face of appalling odds, and the brilliance of Hernán Cortés and his ability to use people to their best advantage, or at least his best advantage, such as the young Nahuatl girl Malinali, who became his translator, counselor, and lover, and his ability to play off different nations against one another, the Tlaxcalans versus the Aztecs, for example. An astonishing story. Whether you think it's a marvelous, hideous, or simply fascinating story, it's an outrageous as well and very well-documented story worthy of a Greek tragedy. August 12, 1865. British surgeon Joseph Lister became the first doctor to use an antiseptic during surgery. It had only been some 20 years before that the first use of anesthesia was made in surgeries, making possible many surgeries which had been far too painful to undergo previously. Nitrous oxide, then ether, were used for this anesthetic. With the two new innovations of anesthesia and antiseptics, the era of modern medicine was born, and many lives were thereby saved, which would have otherwise been lost to shock and infection. August 14, 1900, international forces entered Beijing, China, then called Peking in, <laughs> in Western tongues, uh, in an effort to suppress the anti-foreign uprising known as the Boxer Rebellion. Anti-foreign rebellion against the Western powers, which were busily dividing the corpse of, the Manchu, of Manchu China, was used as an excuse for further expansion into China and the division into spheres of influence. The U.S., late to the game, introduced the open-door policy as a response to try to open up more trade in China to the United States. August 9th, 1945, the United States exploded a nuclear bomb over Nagasaki, Japan, killing an estimated 74,000 people. This second nuclear device introduced plutonium weapons to the world, more as a warning to the Soviet Union than to encourage the Japanese to hasten their surrender, which was already underway. And I know a lot of people think it was a terrible thing that we dropped those two bombs on Japan. On the other hand, we were in the middle of planning this huge invasion of Japan, which I think would have been far, far worse. It's, it's really hard to say from this uh, perspective because we know a lot more now than they did then. Uh, but then there's stuff that we don't know about what was going on in Truman's mind. And, of course, here's Harry Truman, who had this whole thing dropped in his lap. FDR did not let him in on any of the secret discussions he was having about the nuclear weapons development. So, you know, considering Harry Truman knew absolutely nothing about what was going on, huh. uh, he probably did a pretty good job. Wow, okay. Well, a few days later, on August 14th, 1945, victory over Japan, or VJ Day, Japan unconditionally surrendered to the Western allies. This included the Soviet Union, which had been pressured by the U.S. to get involved, getting them the Sakhalin Islands out of the deal. Oddly enough, the sticking point, which had held up earlier attempts to surrender, was the insistence by Japan on not putting the Emperor Hirohito on trial or removing him from his position. In the event the U.S. did 
in fact, allow Hirohito to continue as emperor and did not put him on a show trial for war crimes. In full accordance with Japanese tradition, General Douglas MacArthur became, in essence, the military dictator of Japan, or in Japanese terminology, the shogun, and oversaw all aspects aspects of Japanese governmental function, including the drafting of their new constitution. August 11, 1965. Following the arrest of a young black motorist, the predominantly black neighborhood of Watts in Los Angeles erupted in riots that lasted six days and left 34 dead. It also led to widespread rioting in cities throughout the United States, but far more so in the northern industrial cities than in the Old South. The historian in me wants to credit this with a remark one of my favorite professors, Dr. Malcolm Mole, often stated, revolutions don't happen when people are starving. They happen when rising expectations are cut short. I really think that the mass migration of African Americans from the South to the North in the preceding decades in search of a better life had, had been pretty much in vain for the most part. And I think that the frustration of high expectations followed by probably even further misery in the, these horrible, cold, nasty cities um, than they were experiencing in the South was much to blame for most of this rioting. Yeah, don't, don't set people up and promise them something and then constantly yank it away or make it impossible to get. That, that's, you know. Yep, rising expectations that are cut short mm-hmm. are far more often the cause of revolutions uh, than mere starvation. People don't have time when they're starving. Yeah. Well, this week we also have a little something extra for our, in our news section. And uh, I was just scanning through my Twitter feed or something, and I saw that um, archaeologists have been doing some super detailed high-res scans of King Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. And they are pretty pretty sure after a lot of examination that they have found a couple of little secret um, un, unbefore discovered little access doors behind the the um, wall decoration in the tomb it's it's really interesting because apparently back in the day even guys like Howard Carter who discovered the tomb was a little bit surprised at how small the tomb was. For someone like Tutankhamun, who was a pretty big wheel, why was his tomb so teeny? And, well, maybe it's just the antechamber to another tomb. And uh, Yeah, it might lead to some amazing discoveries. It also might lead to just destroying Tutankhamun's tomb. <laughs> I too. know. I was like, okay, how do they get it <laughs> open? They're going to have to kind of wreck whatever is on the wall there, which is sad. I, I don't know how you fix that. but That or they go around through another Oh, that's true. Side. Tunnel in Tunnel from another in. direction. I don't know how it works. So I'll have to ping, ping an expert on that and see what... He thinks actually I have an expert who I can ping, and I'll have to I'll have to do that. You should do that. Yeah, so that'll be that'll be fun if it's true. If it really is Nefertiti's, and that's the thing. If it's the tomb of Nefertiti, it could be because her tomb has never been found, and she was a big wheel too. So why haven't they found her tomb? And and if it is, and if it really is, no one has discovered this door, including tomb robbers. Then it's going to be in the original condition, which yep. is pretty awesome. <clears throat> pretty rich. It's interesting you use the term big wheel because one of the um, one of the studies I've read concerning King Tutankhamun uh, is a claim that his injuries, the injuries to his mummy, are consistent with being run over. And there's a claim that he either fell off or somehow was tossed off his oh. chariot and got run over by another one. Um, which would certainly cause someone's death, uh, getting run over by a fast-moving well, he vehicle. Was, he was very young when he died. Yeah. So anyway, um, interesting stuff. Yeah. We'll have to look into that more. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. So for our media section today... The first thing I want to mention is a movie, since it has something to do with the, our history headlines, there's 55 Days at Peking. It's from 1960-something. 63. 63. Yep, 63. Starring Charlton Heston and David Niven. And Ava Gardner. And Ava Gardner. Um, it's an interesting little account, uh, fictionalized, of course, the character that 
is played by um, Charlton Heston didn't exist, but it's still kind of a cool little movie. And they talk about how it called, you know, international cooperation and all that sort of thing in 1900 and how we can, you know, the focus is for international cooperation, you know, well, while we're looting China. Right. Well, uh, I think Heston's character was loosely based on somebody I was reading on IMDb. It's like Captain so-and-so. Okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's kind of fun. You get to see the U.S. Marines marching into China and, of course, you know, alongside the uh, British Tommies and Russians and Germans and Japanese and all kinds of stuff. It was a, a very interesting international army that went into China during this uh, this uprising. But you got to sympathize with the Chinese, too, because here their government, the Manchu dynasty, was collapsing. And the European powers, with all their high technology, which, of course, China in its... Yeah, a certain amount of of against and self-centeredness had ignored, um, and they just went roughshod over the country. It's uh, the uh, uh, Chinese historians call the twentieth century the you know the century of um, the century of embarrassment or uh, things like that. Anyway, it's 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 a horrible time as far as the Chinese are concerned. Uh, and this, this doesn't make light of it so much as it doesn't even mention why the Chinese are upset. Um, but I think that's something definitely one should look into. Well, we're still, you know, it's a Hollywood movie, and and at least at least back at at this time, we're just sixty three is just before the time when people started doing socially conscious, you know, films that were actually financially profitable, and. Uh, so it's more about the story and the romance and the sweeping adventure. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of sweeping adventure for sure. There, um, there was a lot of drama behind the scenes on this too. Oh. There's a reason that, well, first of all, they filmed it in Spain because there were not any good relations with China. No, it wasn't going to be filmed yeah, in Beijing. We, we weren't going to film in, in Peking. There was no way. So they filmed it in Spain and they basically took several acres and reproduced downtown Peking. Hmm. And and did it there. And the problem with filming in Spain is you need to populate your city with Chinese people. They're sort of rare. In they Spain, were rare, so they scoured the land for Chinese people. They all not just in Spain, all over Europe. And so basically, this came out in '63. So for the year of 1962, when they were working on this, almost every single Chinese restaurant in Europe was closed because <laughs> they were all working on this movie. Huh. Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, and uh, it was initially, it's credited as being directed by Nicholas Ray, but he was constantly arguing with the producers, and he was just having a hard time with it. And he eventually just walked off the project. So they brought in these other guys, Andrew Martin and Guy Green, who finished the film, and... And, there were, and then there was, they always were going to have Charlton Heston. They were always going to have David Niven. But initially, um, Charlton Heston had suggested um, Jean Moreau and a couple of other actresses for the part of the, the uh, Baroness. And um, somebody else, I think the original director, Nicholas Ray, had wanted Deborah Carr, which would have been outstanding. Mm-hmm. But the producer or somebody, and I may be getting this backwards, wanted Ava Gardner. we got to have Ava Gardner. She was probably hot box office at the time. I don't know. She's getting a little long in the tooth. They decided she had the look they wanted, and they got her. And apparently, I mean, I haven't seen the movie. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, many times. And that she's always in soft focus. Oh, poor, poor honey. Yeah. Well, and that may have been her part of her contract and part of her deal, too, because Heston did not like working with her. He said she was Ooh. awful to work with. Really? Yeah. He complained about how unprofessional she was and how difficult it was to deal with her and just not a happy experience. He always got along with David Niven and everybody else, but he really didn't like Ava Gardner. And I don't think Charlton Heston was a tough guy to get along with. So he seemed to have gotten along with just about everybody. Yeah. So yeah. With, apparently, least. she was a problem. But oh well, she's gorgeous. So anyway, uh, the uh, next thing I wanted to mention was a book that I I've mentioned it on our Goodreads group over at Goodreads. Uh, that was something I was reading. I finished it. It's The Atomic Times, My H-Bomb Year at the Pacific Proving Ground by Michael Harris. It was published in 2005, and he basically chronicles his year on um, Inuitok 
in the South Pacific where they were testing H-bombs. And it was the year is 1957, and he basically starts with him getting off the plane on the island and ends with getting off the plane at the end with a little mention of his life after that. It's very odd. It's a very odd read. It's good, and it's interesting, but it's kind of like Catch-22 meets Lord of the Flies. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really uncomfortable at times. The guys were really horrible to each other, and they were under a lot of stress, and they took it out on each other and really in appalling ways. And it's, sometimes it's really squirmy to read. And so a lot of the officers were definitely around the bend. They had lost it. And there were some really weird things that went on. And by the time you get to the end of it, you realize that our government was using these guys as guinea pigs. They were basically pushing to see what the effects of radiation and different things were going to be on these guys. They didn't issue them any kind of protective gear. They didn't even let them wear goggles during the bomb blasts. And it just all kinds of crazy things went on on this crazy place. But it's definitely a peek into the past. Um, again, it's the Atomic Times, my H-bomb year at the Pacific Proving Ground. I'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah, anybody who studies the U.S. government's uh, involvement in nuclear testing can only be appalled um, <laughs> Post-Manhattan Project, they sort of went off the deep end into a lot of really strange things. And, uh, yeah, this is this is an interesting look at at least one small portion of it. History lives again. In our last couple of episodes, we've talked about the economic... Um, of what was the Spanish borderlands frontier into the present-day United States. Today I want to talk about the actual physical incorporation, or at least uh, legal incorporation through physical means, of the former Spanish colonial frontier into the present-day American Southwest. Um, it really begins, well, in the, 19, in the 18 teens and 20s, but Texas with its um, independence from Mexico, sort of becomes a, an awkward little football, political football, between the United States and Mexico. There were a couple of different invasions of, Mexico, of, of Texas by Mexico. The most important one was in actually 1842, uh, when Mexican troops actually occupied San Antonio again. But for the most part, the United States Senate tried to avoid the question of annexation because it was felt that if the United States annexed Texas, it would lead fairly immediately to war with Mexico. Mexico had never ceded uh, Texas its independence other than this document that was signed by Santa Ana, somewhat under duress, considering they had a you know, a hangman's noose waiting for him if he didn't. That, I think most courts of law would consider that under duress. Um, the United States, Britain, and France all uh, recognized Texas, Texas as an independent nation, and in fact, France had its own uh, legation there. It was it's this tiny little log cabin that still exists, and in fact, the uh, the uh, he wasn't exactly an ambassador of the French um, consul in, uh, in to Texas, to the Republic of Texas. Actually got run out of town because somebody's pig got loose, broke into his garden. He shot the pig and hilarity ensued. Anyway, he got threatened with being hanged and you know lynched and shot and things like that. So he left. It's always um, a pig. Yeah, pigs tend to be involved in almost wars with the United States. Anyway, um, so Texas was sort of a hot potato, but there was never much question that the United States was going to eventually annex Texas. The um, Texas had originally requested annexation. Uh, it had been turned down. And um, anyway, it wasn't until, you know, nine years later, after the Texas Revolution of 1836, that it actually started looking like Texas was going to be actually annexed by the United States. And at this point, we have 
uh, a politician by the name of James Knox Polk. James K. Polk, uh, sometimes called Young Hickory during that day and age because he was uh, a protege of Old Hickory, uh, Andrew Jackson, and he's the first what they call dark horse candidate. He sort of came out of nowhere as a as a candidate for president, and he um, was sort of acceptable to all sides in the nomination process. And anyway, he got himself elected. He's just about the only president of the United States who has ever actually fulfilled his campaign promises. What? Yeah, I know. Amazing. Um, first one that he promised actually happened before his inauguration. He was elected but hadn't been inaugurated because, of course, in the United States, the election is in November. At that time, inauguration wasn't until March. Now it's in January, but at the time it was March, so they'd actually have time to collect and uh, check all the votes. Uh, but at any rate, Texas came in in December of 1845, and that uh, the Senate approved the annexation, and uh, the president, whose name escapes me, anyway, uh, prior to Polk signed it in, and Anyway, so his first campaign promise was sort of fait accompli before he even got in the White House. His other campaign promises, however, were, number one, was the reduction of the tariff. One of the things that comes up over and over and over in American history, in politics, if you actually study it, is the tariff. Tariff, which is basically import and sometimes export duties charged by the federal government, to the importers, exporters. Um, that was the only way that the federal government actually got any money. It was the sole source of their income. And the, uh, it, as always with duties like that, with import duties, tends to be a certain amount of crony capitalism going on, cronyism, and the American manufacturers in New England were going in head-to-head -head competition with British manufactured products, the British stuff was better and actually cheaper because they were further ahead of us in the entire concept of the Industrial Revolution. So their imports were, well, they're better and cheaper. People bought them. So, you know, in the United States or in Britain for that matter, if you have problems like that, you go buy yourself a politician or two and have the import duties raised on the competing products so that even if they're superior, they're going to be more expensive. Uh, oh. for, for example, in uh, firearms, um, there's usually like a, in some, in some cases, there's like a 100% import duty on some things. Holy cow. So uh, they're expensive. That's why a lot of imported stuff is very expensive. Anyway, uh, there was also an export duty to some, to some degree. And at any rate, it was felt that it unduly uh, penalized the South because the South, of course, was primarily agribusiness, huge plantations uh, pumping out lots of agricultural products, whether it was cotton or rice or indigo or tobacco. Uh, these were bulk products. And there were retaliatory do import duties set by other countries. They were getting indigo in the South? Yeah, they, they grew indigo. So it's a plant? Uh-huh. Oh, I always thought it was a mineral. Oh, no. No, indigo's a plant. Hmm. Okay. And so anyway, um, Polk being a Democrat, uh, Southern Democrat, he's from Tennessee, he's actually born in South Carolina, or right on the North Carolina, South Carolina border, um, in the Wax Halls, where... Uh, Bannister Tarleton did a massacre in 1780. Anyway, um, the uh, the tariff was seen to be detrimental to the South, and therefore one of Polk's pro uh, promises was a reduction of the tariff. Second thing he promised was an, the, an independent treasury. Uh, under uh, President Andrew Jackson, the... Uh, Second Bank of the United States had felt a lot of power and they wanted to get their um, charter 
you know, renewed a little early and they picked the wrong guy to mess with and Andy Jackson broke him. Hmm. Uh, however, the Treasury still used a number of independent, pri- uh, you know, um, privately owned banks to hold the funds of the federal government. What uh, what Polk promised was that he was going to make the Treasury independent of that. He said, we can hold our own darn money. Um, we can ho- keep keep the profits uh, of holding money for, to ourselves. There's no reason to use a private bank for the United States. And, in fact, that held true until 1913 when the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. Bank was instituted. The third item at least on my list, of promises which James Knox Polk made for his election was a settlement of the Oregon question. We haven't really talked much about that, and I do want to talk about that a little later, though, um, in another episode. But the Oregon question was the whole uh, Pacific Northwest of both the United States and Western Canada. It includes the present-day states in the United States of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, and also pretty much all of British Columbia, which is a big chunk of land. And the United States and Britain had come to an agreement to jointly occupy this because the claims on this land, which, of course, we completely ignored the claims that Spain had, but claims of the United States and Great Britain both were from the 1790s when um, Captain Gray of the Columbia and also Lady Washington discovered the Columbia River and claimed it for the United States. Uh, And he met up with George Vancouver, who was claiming Puget Sound and Mm -hmm. uh, Vancouver Island for Great Britain. And because they exchanged information, because Britain and and the United States were at peace at the time, they exchanged information um, and whatnot. And And this would have been in... 1790s. Yeah. Uh, um, Anyway... It was all done very peacefully, and the negotiations for um, settlement of this issue resulted in um, 1820 in the, the uh, a treaty which recognized uh, both powers having rights um, in this uh, in this area, and that there was a, what they called joint occupation. Anyway, one of the parts of the treaty was that either side could. Uh, give a year's notice that they wanted out of it and they wanted to, you know, renegotiate the whole thing. Well, uh, that was one of the things that Polk wanted to do was to get out of that treaty and claim the whole thing. Some of his supporters pulled out this wild claim of 54-40 or fight, which was pretty silly because 54-40 North Latitude is the southern border of Russian Alaska, <laughs> oh. which would be Way we would have yeah we'd have taken everything from the California border north to Alaska, which eh, the British did have at least a little bit of of say in it. The British had um, first off put a uh, fur trading fort in Vancouver, present day Vancouver, Washington, which is on the Columbia River. They Fort had moved Vancouver. it yeah they'd moved it to Fort Victoria, which is present day Victoria. British Columbia. Mm -hmm. Uh, The negotiations eventually took place, and in April or June of 1846, um, they renegotiated to continue the 49th parallel, Mm -hmm. which had been the the Minnesota border uh, with British North America, uh, continue it all the way to the Pacific Ocean, or at least to Admiralty Inlet. Mm-hmm. Then negotiations got kind of screwy because they knew that there were some islands in there, but they didn't know where they were and stuff. So they said, well, we'll kind of figure this out later. Yeah, whatever, the San Juans. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it's It's the main shipping channel through the San Juans. That'll be the border, and then out through the Straits of Juan de Fuca. Anyway, that led to more fun, which we'll talk about another day. Mm-hmm. Mo- it, it involved more pigs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that was one of his main selling points, his main talking points, was he wanted to settle the Oregon question. Finally, his his biggest and probably most important promise was he was going to acquire California. Also New Mexico, but he was going to acquire California. 
reason he wanted California, the reason Americans in general wanted California, had nothing to do with the Golden State and all that stuff. It was had everything to do with San Francisco, San Francisco Bay in particular, and the fact that it was a huge, marvelous, protected mm -hmm. uh, port. And that was felt to be the gateway to China. Oh. Getting back to the, <laughs> the Boxer Rebellion, the... Um, China has loomed large in the imaginations of, of the dreamers and expansionists in European history since the 1450s at latest. And, you, I mean, Columbus was looking for China. Mm -hmm. um, the Northwest Passage, everybody was looking for a Northwest Passage to get to China. They figured, yep, well... A better way to China. Exactly. You know, Franklin kind of failed at that. Uh, but, and not Benjamin, but the other one, Sir John... Uh, his expedition yeah. to the north through the north. Yeah. Um, it was discovered there's this entire continent sort of in the way. But once that continent was breached, there had to be a way across the Pacific. And San Francisco was by far and away the best uh, port on the western coast to you know to accomplish that goal. So. The acquisition of California, which, you know, in the minds of the Americans, is well, there's only Mexicans that had it, and they weren't doing anything with it. So why would they want to keep it? Well, it turns out they did. At any rate, we have the election of James K. Polk to the presidency of the United States, uh, and he, during the election of 1845, he comes in in 1846, replaces John Tyler as president. Um... And now he's got to deal with... John Tyler or Zachary Taylor? No, John Tyler was president. Oh. Prior to... John Tyler's pri <laughs> prior to Polk, Zachary Taylor after Polk. Oh, too many guys who sound the same. Yeah. So one of the first things that Polk tried to do was buy California. <laughs> uh, he sent uh, his... Uh, emissary, a fellow by the name of Slidell, to Mexico with an offer of $20 million for California, or 20 to $30 million if they threw in New Mexico. Uh, so, such a deal. <laughs> such a deal for you. Uh, word got out that, uh, to Mexico, that, the, um, that this was happening, and they refused to even let him in. Uh, I mean, he got to Mexico City, but they wouldn't see him. Oh, wow. Uh, the Mexican government officials knew that if were, it, uh, there was a breath of rumor that they were actually, you know, even considering the idea of selling off a chunk of Mexico to the United States, then they, there would be a revolution, uh, you know, immediately. Wow. Um, you know, the Mexicans are a proud people, and they don't like the fact that they're, you know, the Norte Americanos uh, just sort of, you know, pushed their way through everything. And what year is this now? 1846, early 1846. Uh, interestingly, uh, one of the uh, an American commodore, Robert Field Stockton, who we'll talk about later in this Mexican War, one of these episodes, um, he made an offer to President Anson Jones of the Republic of Texas to send an army into Mexico, and we'll support you. I'm going to get a war going here. Well, uh, that didn't happen. Jones wisely <laughs> avoided that. But also, Slidell's mission to Mexico was ignored. Uh, Joel Poinsett, who had been um, ambassador to Mexico, had also had his efforts rebuffed. Uh, Poinsett, interestingly enough, is the fellow who, um, after whom the Poinsetta is named. Oh, okay. I believe he brought that back from him, with him from Mexico, but that, I'm not positive. That makes sense. But anyway, but the, he also wrote a drill manual, right? Well, it was written under his authority oh. as uh, Secretary of War. Kind of funny is he was actually Secretary of the Navy first, and um, in 1845 uh, under Tyler, and he kept trying to get this piece of property at Annapolis, Maryland, for the Navy to use for a um, for an, an academy. It happened to be owned by the Army, and the Army refused to turn it over. 
So during one of those nasty, long, hot summers in Washington, D.C., um, the Secretary of War just wanted to get out of there, wanted to get out of town. He did, and he left Poinsett in charge of both the Army and the Navy. So he was acting Secretary of War. So as acting Secretary of the, so as Secretary of the Navy, he sent a request to the Secretary of War to transfer this property to the Navy. And as acting Secretary of War, he approved of that and therefore transferred this land. Wait a minute. <laughs> of Annapolis uh, to the Navy so that they could actually set up their Naval Academy. That sounds like something out of a Marx Brothers movie. Well, yeah, it, it <laughs> pretty much is. But, you know, hey, he was a politician and a pretty good one. Bureaucrat. At any rate, so it was proving awkward at best to convince Mexico to sell California to us. So it became necessary to manufacture a war. Uh, an army under General Zachary Taylor was sent to Texas, uh, in early 1846, and uh, as soon as Texas was annexed, and they were sent first to the Nueces River. The Nueces River is something like 100 miles or so north of the Rio Grande, and that was the classical border between uh, Texas and uh, Coahuila. Texas, as a republic, however, claimed the Rio Grande as their border, their southern border, mostly because the Rio Grande goes up clear into New Mexico, and Albuquerque and Santa Fe both happen to be on the east side. Therefore, they would become part of Texas if Texas, uh, you know, if things mm. worked out right for the Texans. At any rate, um, this American army, army of observation, uh, on the Nueces, Mexican army withdrew, if they were even there, to across the Rio Grande. This was not sufficient to cause any kind of uh, delicate situations, so President Polk ordered Taylor to move further south and to occupy the northern bank of the uh, Rio Grande, which he did. Uh, he established Point Isabel as his, uh, uh, which is right at the mouth of the, the Rio Grande, where it comes into the... Um, into the Gulf of Mexico, and eventually uh, Fort Brown, a.k.a. Brownsville now, was established. But um, eventually, he got the casus belli for war that uh, Polk was looking for. An American cavalry patrol, they called them dragoons at the time, an American cavalry patrol happened to be, I'm not even sure which side of the river they were on, but they got into a fracas with a Mexican cavalry patrol, and some 11 American dragoons were killed. Uh, the rest of them were captured, um, along with the uh, commander, a major, you know, a major of dragoons was captured. And that information, that little fracas, was sufficient for uh, President Polk to ask for a declaration of war. As soon as he got the word of this, he went straight to Congress and and hollered out, American blood shed on American soil. <laughs> At which point, a freshman congressman named Abraham Lincoln stood up and said, I want to see that on a map. <laughs> At any rate, with a few declines, a few nays, uh, war was declared on Mexico. And it was, um, people look for argue, well, there's no such thing as false flag, you know, events and da-da-da. Well, this is a perfectly good example of one. This is a manufactured war. Oh, yeah. There's no question about it that Polk pushed the United States Army into a position where yep. sooner or later there something was going to be something yeah, happen. Something was going to happen. They were going to push it and push it and push it. So with the declaration of war, um, that sort of gave um, a free reign both to General Taylor and to his, um, I believe it was General Koss on the other side uh, of the river. Anyway, it gave them pretty much free reign to engage in fisticuffs, and they resulted in two battles. Actually, the Mexican forces crossed over the river for these two battles. Uh, the first one was the Battle of Palo Alto, 
and the second was Resaca de la Palma. In both of these battles, it was not the American infantry which was the primary, uh, I guess, vehicle for victory, if you will. It was the American light artillery. The command of uh, a major Ringgold of the artillery, the, um, the American artillery had uh, developed what they call flying artillery. These guys, every man was mounted. They could move fast. They could, they could move their little six-pounder guns at a gallop. Mm -hmm. And they would unlimber these things 40 yards away from the uh, opposing line of battle. Uh, both sides were still fighting formal Napoleonic battle uh, tactics where they would line up in a row and blaze away at each other with flintlock muskets. Uh, pretty much no different from the War of 1812, the American Revolution, uh, or Marlborough's victory at Blenheim in 1704. So flying artillery is a new thing at this point? Yes, the British had developed it during the War of 1812, but uh, Major Ringgold had brought that idea to the United States huh. and and uh, worked very heavily on it. And, of course, all these guys were regulars. These were all regular army mm -hmm. that fought at these two battles at Palo Alto and Resaca de la Palma. One young lieutenant, a guy by the name of George Gordon Meade, who later became commander of the Army of the Potomac during the American Civil War, uh, was very happy that the two battles had been fought before American volunteers had gotten there, the state volunteers, because he felt that the volunteers always hogged all the glory. <laughs> uh, this showed that the American regular army was perfectly capable, in fact, really good at what it did. Another young lieutenant by the name of Ulysses Grant uh, managed to even though he was back in supply, he managed to work his way to the front lines. And he, in his memoirs, he points out that the Mexican army, um, the troops were actually very brave and stalwart and good troops. The problem was that the officer corps was horrible because most of the Mexican officers were there as sort of a, um, a social vanity. There were actually more officers, like half-pay officers in the Mexican army than there were soldiers, you know, enlisted men. Wow. Uh, and, yeah, it's it one of these things where, you know, it became a social right. function as opposed to, you know, oh, I'm an officer, and you get to wear a fancy uniform and all that kind of thing um, and never actually get any training in the whole process. But both of the battles were won primarily by this flying artillery because these guys had come literally flying up at a gallop unlimber their artillery piece, load and fire, load and fire, um, using grape shot or actually canister, which is basically think of a soup can full of ball bearings. Uh, you get a three and a half inch bore muzzleloading artillery piece that is throwing, you know, it's, it's, it's a big shotgun mm -hmm. and uh, it's absolutely devastating to infantry. The Mexican infantry again, did its best, and they were really good, but they just couldn't hold up against the onslaught of firepower like that. Interestingly, modern archaeology of Resaca de la Palma has discovered that the Mexican artillery was using copper cannonballs. Hmm. Copper was a whole lot easier to come by in Mexico than iron. Oh. Their guns were cast out of bronze, and actually using copper is a marvelous thing because it's got a slightly heavier weight than it's slightly more massive than iron so you have better uh, ballistics with it it doesn't wear down your the tube of your gun so it was actually pretty cool i was discussing that with my friend taylor anderson one time and who i have to get on this show yeah he's an amazing guy at any rate Taylor, um, although he won those two battles, didn't really win anything other than two battles. Uh, there was a dragoon officer named Charles May who claimed to have captured some Mexican guns uh, and mega Mexican general. Actually, it was his bugler that did that. Uh, and <laughs> poor May, uh, I don't think that he actually claimed to have, but he didn't deny 
having captured him when somebody claimed he did. So, anyway, um, the, the war had to be taken to Mexico. And you got to admit, the Rio Grande is a long way from Mexico City. So, Taylor was ordered by the War Department, by the president, to head south. They took uh, Zacatecas and the city of Monterey, and they made heavy use of the Texas Mounted Volunteers, also known as the Texas Rangers. The interesting thing with these Texas Rangers is they were actually proponents of um, fairly new innovation in warfare, and that was the Colt Revolving Pistol. The commander of the first Texas Mounted Volunteers was a fellow by the name of John Coffey Hayes, and... Uh, he had been presented with a Colt's revolving, a pair of Colt's revolving pistols, these small things, little 32 caliber jobs, by a Texas businessman who in turn had been presented with these pistols by Samuel Colt himself, who had patented his his uh, revolvers, his new innovation. Uh, in fact, like only a couple days after the Alamo fell, Texans were very enthusiastic in their adoption of this new technology. You had five shots, and or in the rifle, you had eight shots, and the carbine, six shots. And the uh, anyway, the Texas Rangers, especially under Hayes, were very enthusiastic uh, adopters of this new technology. They had finally found something that, um, or a mounted American could compete with a, a mounted Comanche um, in combat, because Comanches with their bows and whatnot were. Yeah, American with a single-shot rifle and a pair of pistols was no no match. And a pair of five-shot revolvers, all of a sudden he, this American was a match. This Texan, at least, was a match for the Comanche. Anyway, the Texans brought with them these Colt revolvers. And um, they were um, used heavily by Taylor in, um, in the uh, conquest of, of, especially in Monterey. Um, if you go to the city of Monterey in Mexico today, and you go to, up to the Bishop's Palace, you will discover there are still some big gouges in the walls, uh, because the Bishop's Palace was this big fortified uh, edifice, this, this pile of stone, uh, which the Mexicans had, in fact, fortified. Um, and we pounded the heck out of it with artillery. And the Mexicans have left that there for everybody to see what <laughs> what kind of... Of, um, things that Americans can do. At any rate, uh, shortly after the battle, the uh, the Texans, uh, their um, service was up, and Taylor was happy to send them home. Uh, he said, uh, they're brave and gallant in war, but dangerously undisciplined in peace. Another American officer said, Pity the poor Mexicans that they that uh, they come across on their way home. Uh, these guys were not very friendly towards the Mexican population. The, um, the um, Battle of Monterey still wasn't enough to get uh, Mexican government motivated, however. So, um, so Taylor was ordered to go even further into Mexico. Now, about this same time, uh, our hero of, of the last installment, or earlier installment, uh, when Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana comes back into the picture. Uh, last time we talked about him, he was in a... Uh, uh, he'd been captured by the Texans and sent off to America, where he introduced chewing gum to the United States and became fabulously wealthy. He eventually was repatriated to Mexico, uh, in fact, he got involved in several more revolutions. Um, in 1838, there was a war that is <laughs> euphoniously termed the Pastry War, in which, um, I think I mentioned this, how he lost his leg due to a French cannonball uh, at, the battle, at a battle in Veracruz. Um, the, anyway, at this point in 1846... Santa Ana had been exiled, this time to Cuba, and he went to Washington City and got an interview with the president and his 
cabinet, and he provided them with a, a, a novel solution to their problem. He said, if you smuggle me into Mexico, basically let me go through your naval blockade, with $5 million in gold, I will raise an army in Veracruz because they love me in Veracruz. I will march on Mexico City. I will overthrow the government. And then I will sell you California. And the Polk administration thought, hey, this is great. This is a cheap way to get out of fighting this war. And so they proceeded, as Santa Ana suggested, they smuggled him into, um, into Veracruz. And at that point, he did exactly as he had promised to do. He used his $5 million rather um, freely. He bought arms, raised an army, marched on Mexico City, overthrew the government, and proceeded to loot what was left of the treasury and raise a bigger army, and then he marched north to eject Taylor from Mexico. Hmm. Uh, Santa Ana may have been a sociopath and um, you know, all kinds of other things, but he was still a Mexican patriot and he was not going to allow an American army to uh, occupy a large portion of Mexico. So he marched on Mexico, on uh, Taylor in Monterey. So this is all long before the Alamo. Oh, this is long after the Alamo. Wait. This is nine years after, ten years after the Alamo. I th but I thought after the Alamo, I thought they captured him. And they did. They set him loose. He went to, to the United States, became rich on Chicle, oh. then was involved in three or four more revolutions in Mexico. Grief. What a pest. Yeah, he was an interesting guy. Um, so he proceeds to march north to eject Taylor. Taylor marches south to meet him, and in a little valley called Buena Vista, the two armies met. Uh, interestingly, one of the little sideshows in that was Taylor's son-in-law, uh, a very successful planter in Mississippi named Jefferson Davis, also an aspiring politician who later became the uh, president of the Confederacy. Actually, in the 1850s, he was Secretary of War. Um, he did what was called a, an inverted V or a refused flank. Santa Ana had sent some of his troops up through the hills to come down on the American flank, on the American left flank. Um, Davis was astute enough to see what was going on. He turned his troops uh, into a, a what they call an inverted V. Basically, he protected his flank and the rear of the Americans and fought off this, Amer this Mexican assault um, and became a national hero because of it. One of his Confederate generals later said, the Confederacy was lost at the Battle of Buena Vista and in the inverted V when Jefferson Davis thought, uh, discovered that he was a military genius. At any event, it was a very, very hard-fought battle. Um, both sides thought they'd lost. Uh, at the end of the first day, Taylor ordered his uh, officers to assemble in a, uh, for a council of war. And you never assemble a council of war unless you actually <laughs> want your retreat covered, as it were. Uh, but he asked, what do you think? What, gentlemen, what do you think? Should we retreat or should we stand? And one of his officers, uh, one of his generals said, I think we, I think it was a close run thing today, but I think we can stand one more day. If, if it's just as bad tomorrow, then we retreat. But let's give it one more day. Taylor said, all right, we'll give it one more day. And um, when they got up the next morning to resume the conflict, Santa Ana and the Mexican army was gone. What? It was a very close run thing. As I said, both sides thought they'd lost. It was a, one of the hardest fought battles the United States military's ever been in. And um, there are a lot of casualties on both sides. There's an interesting story about Taylor. It seemed like the higher in rank he got, the less military he looked. Um, and the closer to some old farmer he started to resemble. And in one military camp, a young officer who had just appointed to that 
to that position, uh, shows up in camp and he goes over to introduce himself, you know, to give his card and whatnot to the, the general. And there's nobody around except some old man in the back who's um, sitting on a stump polishing a sword. And this youngster comes up and says, well, old man, where's the general? I said, oh, he's around here somewhere. And the feller says, young lieutenant says, well, there, old feller, give you a dollar if you polish my sword. And he says, okay. Anyway, the lieutenant then wanders off and comes back several hours later. Is introduced to the general, General Taylor, uh, who happens to be the old farmer that he's <laughs> found <laughs> sitting on a stump polishing his sword. At which point, Taylor hands the young man back his sword and said, that'll be a dollar. Well, yeah. <laughs> he charged him a dollar for that. Anyway, uh, Taylor had a, a pretty good sense of humor. Um, that pretty much was the end of the first phase, the northern phase of the Mexican-American War, the northern invasion. Buena Vista was as far as we really penetrated into northern Mexico, and even though Santa Ana retreated, it became painfully ob obvious that the Americans were getting at the bitter end of their logistical train, and this was just not going to work. So several other avenues had already been explored, but the one that ended up being the war-winning campaign was now an invasion of Mexico through Veracruz. So next week, I want to talk about the invasion of Mexico through Veracruz under General uh, Winfield Scott. But I'm also going to talk a little bit about a couple of other what I think are even more interesting aspects of the Mexican-American War. One is the ride of Stephen Watts Kearney and his 1st Dragoon Regiment from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, first to Santa Fe, where they conquered New Mexico without firing a shot, and then he continued on to California. For California, it was primarily a Navy affair. One very seldom thinks in terms of the U.S. Navy as being instrumental in the conquest of the West and the settlement of the West, but as far as California and the Pacific Northwest is concerned, the Navy was, in fact, instrumental in that. Mm -hmm. So so our three-part series is going to become a four-part series. Yep. It's going to be a little bit longer than anticipated because there's a lot of really, really neat information to go over. Okay. Well, if we're very lucky, it'll be a five-part series. <laughs> <laughs> it, it might end up being a five-part <laughs> series. It depends on how far we get on this yeah. uh, next week. Yeah, okay. Well, another another head full of information. My head's exploding with, with the Mexican-American War now. Uh, so if you don't already uh, follow us on Twitter and you're a Twitter person, go ahead and do that. We're at history underscore files on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at the History Files Show. And of course, you can find us at SciCon website. That's C-S-I-C-O-N uh, dot net. And you can find us there. That's a great place to leave comments or check in with things or join SciCon chat. And don't forget, we also have a Goodreads group now where I'm putting any books we recommend during the show, I'm putting on our Goodreads group. And you can feel free to share things that you think we might be interested in or what you happen to be reading history-wise or whatnot. It's a great place to, to share and chat and keep in contact with everybody. So, and uh, don't forget to check out Psycon's other fine shows. There's Coffee with Jeff, where he just takes one story. Sometimes it's his, in fact, often it's historical, but sometimes not. And uh, he goes through that. And also, we've got our new, newly revamped Geek Days. That's Brecky Thomason's daily tech news show. That uh, it's about 10 minutes long, so it's a real quick uh, bit of tech news and sometimes some geeky stuff and a little bit of history too but mostly it's a nice nice uh, tech news show where you can get latest developments there and uh, it's it's a it's a really good show it's a lot of fun so anyway i think we're about okay done. so the, that'll do it for this week's episode so please join us next week for another exciting episode of the history files the History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. 
For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at scicon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash THF. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash scicon or patreon.com slash badcatshows where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.